Oh, hello, all you beautiful body, mind, soul seekers. Firstly, I want to say a heartfelt thank you for your patience. It has been quite a few months since we last spoke. Months I've spent recuperating from two years of juggling and at times struggling to manage an any career, host this podcast, write research reviews and launch two new websites, which, as I say all of that out loud, feels hardly surprising that I hit burnout again. But this time, I've listened to the call of my own body, mind and soul, taking this opportunity to reevaluate both how I work and where I work. And so it is that I find myself here in Mexico, taking a dose of my own medicine for a change which is already helping to set a new flow of energy in motion, revealing all sorts of possibilities and opportunities to emerge. And it's with that that I'm super excited to share with you my first online event, scheduled for the 21st of March, the Spring Equinox. More details to follow next week. And in the meantime, follow my new Instagram handle at dr.bodymindsoul, that's at dr.bodymindsoul for all the latest updates. And with no further ado, I want to introduce to you Tree Car, the death doula. On this episode, we are talking to Tree Car, a true witchy woman who explores the esoteric realms of death, dreams, and divination. She is a published author, a high priestess, and a certified end-of-life guide, otherwise known as a death doula. In this role, Tree holds space for healing, peace, support, and compassion during the profound and sacred time of death and dying, helping people spiritually, emotionally, existentially and practically at the end of their lives. And it is this work that I would like to learn more about during this conversation. So welcome Tree. Hi. Hi. I mean, I'm so intrigued by your work as a death doula. It's a term and a role I had never heard of before until I heard you speak of it on the Universe Within podcast that I heard a few months ago. So I would just love to know how you had heard of that work and how you arrived at that work. Well, I have never heard of this work <laughs> like you before I started doing this work. And uh, I you know, had never heard of this role, but it would seem as though my path was laid out from a young age to be walking into this role. And it wasn't until I was probably the age of 40 where I had like several synchronistic experiences all throughout my life to that point that helped me connect the dots as to being called into this line of work. And uh, yeah, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it as uh, succinct as possible. (laughs) And I feel like it really actually all started when I was four years old, when I had a near-death experience. So if I was to really look back down the long timeline of my life, I would say that that was the defining moment 
that initially activated me or initiated me in a way into working in the realms of death. And this near-death experience, um, you know, happened when I was four on a beach in South Carolina, and I was um, swept away by a sneaker wave that came out of nowhere. Uh, When the tide was really out, I was literally just collecting shells or rocks or just being a little kid on the sand. And it it looked like, you know, the the water was very far away. So it wasn't something that was within my radar, but this wave came and pulled me out. And in those moments of being pulled out to the ocean uh, and being, you know, roughed around in the waves where, which felt like a big giant washing machine, I had, uh, you know, this really intense experience of the threshold of death. And in that experience, it was like my life flashed before me, which wasn't very long because I was only four. (laughs) And uh, this, you know, this fight or flight response, obviously, like grasping at the poles of the docks as I was being ripped out to the open ocean and the barnacles ripping at my hands as I was doing that. And and then a sense of like, this is actually, I can't fight this. This is going to pull me out. So a real sense of peace, calm, acceptance, uh, a sense of transcending who I was as a person into something that was more boundary dissolving and something that was just pure, just love. But also in those moments, and this happens so quickly, you know, when you when you have these sort of experiences and articulating it is a challenge, but I like to try to articulate these sort of things. And it was in those really quick moments of so many different emotions and then this experience of boundary dissolving oneness. I also had this real sense of compassion and empathy for my family and a real sense of sadness. Like it was almost like I I was out like floating above and I could see that their sadness and their grief of never being able to find my body. And uh, like that being like this real, you know, uh, tragedy for them, but I almost didn't feel sorry for myself. (laughs) Like I felt bad for them and I felt great empathy for them and great sadness for them. So it really also triggered this intense empathy as well, the experience. And then as I was experiencing that really like profound, you know, connection to everything and then also to my parents and being lifted a bit out of time and space, my dad had grabbed me and rescued me. So he had been watching from the shore and, you know, being a responsible dad and, you know, he, he noticed what happened. So he came out to my rescue and he came and got me and he saved my life, which was great because <laughs> I'm here now. <laughs> and in those moments on the beach, uh, you know, he, he, he put my, my jumper on me, my sweater. I had like a sweat top that we, that, that had Mickey Mouse on it. It was like this orange sweat top that I had and he put that on me to keep me warm and then he took a photo of me which was really I thought really odd why would you take a photo and I thought at the time just being in absolute shock and like just shaking with like you know shock 
Mm-hmm. I always saw it at the moment. Like, is he doing this to cheer me up? Like to distract me? Like it felt like it was, maybe he was trying to do this distraction, but it, w- it was upon years later when I was a teenager, because we always had that photo it was in the photo album and it always slightly, like slightly haunt me when I saw it. He told me, Oh, I took that photo because your eyes really changed in the moment of that. Ex- when I, your eyes were very different. And also he wanted to take the picture to, you know, just remember that moment of, you know, saving. And I still have that photo and the photo is really, you know, it's good that it's there because it, to me, it felt like a captured an initiation of sorts. And my eyes do look really strange in the photo. Uh, They, you know, they, they look like they've seen death. So if you see the photo there, I mean, I have the photo here. I'll just go ahead. But in the photo, it's a real 70s photo, by the way. <laughs> oh, wow. But in the photo, my eyes are absolutely wow. black. It looks like I'm wearing black oh. contact lenses. Oh, gosh, that's such a haunting photo. That is such a haunting photo. Yeah. Oh, wow. Gosh. And so it's from that point onwards, I feel that it, it set me on a path. And I had one foot in the other realm and one foot here. And also it helped me understand death because I surrendered to it within those moments. And I was able to go beyond, you know, who I was as a person at that time. So there was an ego death. But, of course, we still have our our egos, you know, like, obviously, I, I still move beyond that experience and you know, moved into solidifying my ego as well. But I think because I had that, I knew what ego death sort of felt like. So I was able to have this vantage point where I can like move above the story of who I am tree. And I, I, I could just kind of jump into that zone a little bit. It, so I never thought of it much until I got much older that, oh, I do that quite a bit. I shift into these other modes sometimes where I'm, I go outside of who I am. And I don't know, I guess psychology would call it disassociation, but I don't really see it as that because it's not like I had, I don't feel trauma from it. It's so strange, I, you know, almost drown, but I don't have PTSD when it comes to water. Like I'm fine in the water. I I'm okay. You know, I have no fear of swimming. I can go swimming out in an open ocean or sea. Absolutely fine. I love it. I'm compelled. I, I, I love the ocean. So it was like the ocean taught me something that day too. the power of nature and the cosmic forces that we, that are around us all the time and uh, how to work with them be friends with them really. And how to be friends with death. But of course, you know, my tiny little four-year-old mind is not processing all that. It's on the long journey of life and and doing this sort of practice and and looking back and being just a pretty much reflective person that I'm able to, you know, see that integrative process. I was just about to use that word integration. It sounds like there was a real there has been a lifetime of integration of that experience, but that experience happening at such a young age, giving you an embodied experience of that near-death experience and as you say 
true ego death experience, which then gives you or gave you a frame of reference. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually only been recently that I've been talking about this near death experience. Usually when people ask about the death doula stuff, I, I just, I, I usually start around the age of my teen years when I started to have a lot of um, experiences in and around death. And um yeah, I, I feel like uh, what, what really activated this was just recently going through old boxes and finding that photo and going, oh, yeah, of course, you know, like, I, you know, I nearly died at four. That makes sense. The story starts much, much sooner than that. So when I moved into my teen years, I, um, you know, had a you know, well, actually beyond the four years old, my, my grandfather died when I was about five or six, you know, around that age. And I felt really absolutely, you know, calm around that too. Uh, when my mom was explaining that my grandfather died, I felt like, yeah, I know that's like, I had this strange sense of, I know what that is. And, uh, my mother sort of tried to couch it and say it in the nicest way possible, but I felt as though I was quite calm with that. And we had like his, he had a proper wake. So it was an open casket. And as a little kid, I was going and touching and holding his hand when he was in the ca casket. It just felt really normal. And I had like a lot of older relatives going, you can't do that. Stop <laughs> touching him. <laughs> but, you know, so I had this real, you know, felt comfortable around it. And then when I was a teenager, I started to have a lot of mystical experiences, experiences around out-of-body states, liminal states, lucid dreaming, psychic dreams. And, you know, I felt like I was starting to get activated when it came to all of those um, realms. And also death was around me quite a bit. I, My best friend, her dad was dying of cancer all through high school. And I was almost like her doula. I was there through the whole process and just like a steady calm through the storm of that. And um, Around that time too, you know, my granny and my grand, my granny and my mother, they're Scottish. They were always like the type of women who would go to funerals. They would be there to support people in grief. And they were, you know, friends, funerals, uh, friends of friends, funerals and whatnot. And whenever there was a death and they were about to go do their homage to like the wake or, you know, to the funeral, I'd say, oh, can I come too? And my mom would be like, oh, yeah, all right. Okay. You could come. <laughs> So I wanted to be around death and I wanted to experience, you know, these grieving processes, these rituals. I wanted to be at open wake funerals and see corpses, like not in a, in a morbid way. Like I, I never felt like I wanted to be an undertaker or anything like that. I just wanted to be around the reality of, of death. And I felt calm in the process. I always felt like there's something here that's pulling me in. And then and around that time when I was a teenager, I started to have like all of these synchronistic events started to unfold at the age of 17. And they carried all through my 20s, all the way through my 30s and 40s now, even still. And it's a synchronistic event that happens about three to four times a year. And it's where I happen to be at the right place in public when a stranger is in some kind of accident or distress or health issue ranging from motorcycle accidents 
to bicycle accidents, to people falling off their chairs, having an epileptic seizure, people falling down escalators, people having an overdose of drugs, you know, like in my arms. And it is, it was just so uncanny to the point where all my friends are just saying, this is so weird. Every time we're out with you, like at a restaurant or we're walking through a market or we're at a pub, there's something that happened. They like literally falling at your feet and it, it is really uncanny. So this is, you know, this started when I was 17 with a motorcycle accident and uh, that, you know, literally this man launched off of his motorcycle hit by a truck and it was just like, boom. And, you know, just landing there and just being there for this person. And, you know, from that point onwards, it was just happening a lot and always just so the timing is just, you know, I see it as divine timing now. But at the time I was getting the complex. I was like, am I a curse or a jinx? Like literally, this is so weird. I do dream work. As you know, I work in the realms of dreams and a dream guide. So I decided I'm going to consult my dreams over this because this is like a lifetime of this from the age of 17 to 40. So I decided to say to my dreams intentions, why? Why is this happening? So I got the message from my dream as I was waking up. And I got a quick succession of all like a connect the dots situation of, you know, through my whole life and a real sense of this, you know, message of this is happening because you're meant to be doing this role. So this is, you know, you're not a curse. It's not a jinx. You're in the right place in the right time because you need to be doing this job. And I woke up and I was like, this job, I mean, like, it's not a paramedic. I'm not a paramedic. I'm not a nurse. And what I've been offering is just like this energy thing, you know, just this calm and this love, like this, you're, you're not alone. It's okay. I'm helping people breathe through things and like, like saying things, I'm helping them emotionally, psychologically, you know, energetically. So I decided, okay, well, what is this role? I'll get onto Google and just do a word search, which I did do, which was emotional support at death. Or that was the only thing I could think of. And what came up was the death doulas. And on the death doula, there was a death doula page for training. And I went to the website and I was like, what a doula, what? And uh, I got all the information I needed. A death doula is a person who is there to emotionally support people on the thresholds of death, psychologically and spiritually in some cases. And I just was buzzing with like a resonance, a confirmation of that is it. I can't believe I didn't know about that. And uh, the rest is history. I just signed up straight away, sent them an email and said, get me onto the training. So it was like, I listened to the the call. It took a long time. (laughs) It took a really long time, but it almost felt timely too, because when you move into your forties, especially as a woman, you know, you really, you really shift into this different mode. And I really do think as women, when we move into our forties, we move into our crone years, into our true witchy natures. And so this felt really important. So yeah, it's um, an ancient role. The death doula role is ancient, actually, even though we see it as like, oh, I never knew about this role. 
and there's training for it. This is a role that women have been doing for thousands of years, you know, bringing life into the world and also helping to usher, you know, consciousness out. And um, we've just lost connection from this ancient, innate, person-centered, humane and compassionate approach to death. So it's nothing new under the sun. It's actually deeply within our ingrained within us. So yeah, part of going through this too is just connecting to this ancientism of of what is really true, you know. And it's uh, I mean we are so disconnected from from it. It's something that most people really shy away from and avoid confronting their own mortality but also be it's very difficult to be present I think um around death for a lot of people I mean a lot of people will not have had the experiences like you of being around death as much as you have and I I guess being a doctor I've been around death more than the average person and although I think we are getting better in many ways of acknowledging the process of death and wanting to support people through that in a medicalized way. So ensuring there is no suffering or at least no physical suffering that has, that has improved with the um, advent and of, of palliative care. And I know in the hospital setting, getting palliative care in early in order to ensure that transition from life to death is painless. But what really intrigues me about your personal story and then hearing about some transitions that you have shepherded is that sometimes there's an emotional struggle with that transition into death. I don't think the medical profession at least acknowledges or is aware of. But, you know, even though we've made great feats of medical science and it's fantastic, the palliative care that we have now, keeping people comfortable and pain-free at end of life, it's wonderful. I mean, people died really painful deaths not very long ago, <laughs> you know, and people were like trying to knock each other out, you know, drinking lots of, you know, whiskey or something to just take the pain away. But we've really, you know, are coming into a, this amazing, you know, realm of much more comfort. But what I see at end of life, people's comfort needs, physical needs are met, but then they're left with the emotional terrain and the terrain of the dark night of the soul, which people experience. People really go through the dark night of the soul when they know and they're given a prognosis that death is coming and it's soon. And this is what is where we're lacking the support. But when someone is given like a prognosis and they know or their end of life, this is a big part of the territory. Now, part of the dark night of the soul is experiencing the dissolving of your ego. It's a form of ego death. And this is one of the things that happens before the biological death. And a lot of people don't know what that looks like, or even understand what it feels like. 
But the death of your ego is can really propel people into this existential crisis of who am I? What was I? You know, I was a successful entrepreneur or I was a, you know, prolific politician. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to die. What is it? You know, it really, it unravels a person's sense of purpose, what is, and this can be very difficult and challenging terrain for people to navigate through. So that's one thing to help people traverse through is, is the dissolving of ego. Now, dissolving of ego doesn't have to be, it feels painful, but it is actually quite freeing. Because once you become at peace with your life, your story and the story of your ego, and then you move beyond it from a vantage point that's very similar to the near-death experience I described when I was a four-year-old, where you're almost looking above and you're, you're connected to everything and everything is sort of like, you know, I don't want to be too cheesy and saying everything is one, but it's being at this point of just elation and complete freedom. A lot of people are stuck into their egos. A lot of people cling on to their story. And this is where we get held within the state of, you know, ego battle battles or resistance and misery and the pain, you know, it, it's, it's clinging to our identity, our story. And this is what I see as, as one of the biggest challenges for people end of life and moving into death. And, you know, there's not a lot of support with that, that, that sort of, and so whenever I sit with people, I just access those liminal states again. And those liminal states are very childlike. It's, you're just there as this, like a pure love for a person. And I think understanding what it, the pain that it feels when you're dissolving your identity, I can greatly empathize with that. So there's no words that you can say to a person to make it better. You cannot say the right things to be, you know, to, to make it go away. The person is going to die. That is the reality. We are all going to die. The most you can do as a death doula in the role that I do is just to be there energetically, emotionally, the love that's there, just holding them in often you don't even say anything it's just giving this you know this energy to them uh and this this support and sometimes there's, there's humor i always bring in humor into the situation too there's always humor and a childlike presence that that helps as well so we get really freaked out by death it seems so dark and heavy but you know there is a lot of the stuff that people really struggle with at end of life is like, it's like all of the regrets. It's all of the skeletons in the closet. It's all of the things they didn't have closure with. It all comes up to the surface end of life to look at and deal with. And a lot of people feel haunted, you know, at the end of life, because it's like, oh my God, my estranged son that I never made peace with. Oh, you know, that ex-girlfriend that I never said sorry to, or, you know, it all comes up for review. I got to just say now, uh, all of those skeletons come out and people uh, really face that stuff. 
and um, it's ready to go. You know, you're not going to take it with you. That's why you have, you know, all these traditions of like the last rites. You have priests that come to do confessions, you know, with, you know, you see it in so many different belief systems, this role of people unloading, you know, unloading their, their unfinished business. So as a death doula, that could be part of the territory too, you know, where, where people tell you things, of course, in confidential, you know, we're all very confidential, but, you know, people have a need to purge emotionally, psychologically before they go. That's so interesting. What you don't deal with in life, you will deal with at the end of life in a way. There's no escaping that. How does the relationship with a client and a death doula work? Do you, you know, how early in the process do you start working with someone? And does it change? Does does how you work with them change over time and their proximity to their death? Are you there in the transition? Yeah, I'm like, you know, there's, it seems like there's so many different layers to the role. Yeah, so it's all very different. I've, I've had experiences where I've had just one-off sessions with people. I've had experiences where it's been like a whole week. Others have been several years. Uh, some situations have been primarily for the person who is, you know, going through the dying process. And then loads of other experiences have been support for the family, the family members, like the key family member. It could, could you know, the daughter who is um, taking care of her, her father and being of support to her through it all. So it really is so different from person to person and it's bespoke as well. And when I'm, you know, Often when I have an initial um, meeting with a person, I'll just say, what, you know, what are you, what are you navigating and what are you looking for? Some people want um, spiritual help. Some people want, uh, you know, um, emotional support or psychological support. Others want a, a practic- some practical advice around the, 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 the scenario. So it's really different. Others want um, deathbed vigiling where, you know, the three days of active dying, they, they really need some, some support doing that. Uh, so it's very different from person to person. Uh, some long-term uh, clients that I have, I'm, I'm like a guide. I've, I've been with them for several years and um, I, I'm, I offer, you know, I'm, I'm company, you know, like in, through it all. But also I, help them with little things, you know, of how to, how to navigate stress and anxiety, do meditations, um, have conversations, reflect on their life, um, help guide them towards making peace with their siblings or shifting their focus into being more mindful and experiencing the richness of the power of just now uh, so that's very different because there's a long view. And so there, it's more like walking a person home in a way. I mean, so it's very different. A, very different and such a gift. I'm, uh, it's such a gift because I'm just imagining 
I'm just imagining someone who's navigating the process of, of, but to be able to be in someone's presence where you don't have to make that other person feel more comfortable talking around your death is probably such a relief for that other person. They know you are super comfortable with the concept of them dying. They don't have to make you feel better around that. So it must offer them a degree of freedom. They're dying. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, I think once the cat's out of the bag and you talk really openly and transparent about it, like, yeah, this is reality, you know, like this, it's all right. It's very freeing for people because it's the big boogeyman in the closet, right? It's the big taboo and no one wants to look at death. There's this, just even saying the word death, people get superstitious, you know, they just saying it means, oh my God, I'm going to die. It's like, well, yeah, of course you're going to die. It might not be next week, but eventually. So there's a lot of stigma around death and it's the great taboo. And I think there's something very liberating when you're able to just chat about it and talk about the reality. And it, it frees people tremendously. And I think that's a big part of the healing process as well. And but it, it's so it's such a um, sacred time and it's such a gift to hold space for people during this sacred time. It, it is uh, deeply, deeply profound and um, I just honor it so much. So, you know, as a death doula, there's you have to take care of yourself, you know, um, you, you need to have a self-care practice. A lot of people go at this thinking this is so depressing. You must sponge so much grief and sadness and negativity and go home feeling like, and I just don't, I feel so uplifted. I feel like I uplift my clients. I feel that I bring in like this lift or this sparkle or this part of the realm that just is like held with love. So I never feel down after a session. I don't feel like I absorb anything either. Now you need to know how to have boundaries, right? Healthy boundaries. That's a big part of the practice. You know, what is yours? What is them? You are, you know, thyself. When you sit with a person who's, who's really in these states of grief and dark night of the soul, you need to know where you start and stop and end and they start and stop and end. And you know, you need to be strong within yourself there's a lot of layers to this role. <laughs> a lot of layers. And I'm really intrigued, actually, in how you, what the training looks like for a role like this, because you're describing like a real need for a lot of inner, inner work and practice in order for you to be able to hold the space. So can you outline what that training looked like? Yeah, so I did my training with Living Well, Dying Well, and they're UK-based, and they're they're in conjunction with the Crossfields Institute. And with this training, it was was great. They covered the you know the biological aspects of death, the implications of you know um, psychological, emotional, and spiritual. So you know you're covering all the different elements that a person and dimensions that a person can experience, but also through the training as well, all the pragmatic and practical stuff. And a big part of the training too is, is sitting with your own death first too, you know, like, because how can you sit with someone else 
and hold, hold them and hold space for them. If you're not like you haven't contemplated and held space for yourself. So there was, there was some really interesting exercises as well and um, practices that we engaged in that would bring us into these, you know, sitting with our own deaths, planning our own funerals, you know, looking at our own feelings around it. So even if you don't go on to be a death doula, I recommend the course if you just want to get over your fear of death and you want to explore your feelings or your emotions about it. So really wonderful course. And there's a lot of courses that have now transpired, you know, since this, this death positive movement has been popping up to the surface. There's fantastic ones in the United States as well. Um, Sacred Crossings in California are fantastic. They run a, uh, a wonderful course um, on death uh, mid- midwife, midwifery, and also, uh, you know, dying at home, DIY burials, uh, aftercare of the body at home, and a lot of sacred practices as well, which are have been uh, incre- incredible as part of this whole support system. So, yeah, it was a great experience and um, it certainly helped. But I also have my own practices that have continued to help me. Meditation's a big one. Like I was mentioning, I go away on Vipassana retreats and sit with myself for 11 days, you know, and traverse through, you know, these places of dark nights of the soul and moving beyond ego constructs. Also, you know, working with psychedelics, I have been really uh, a big one for me too. Primarily ayahuasca, which has been uh, my biggest teacher on death. I gotta say, even though I've gotten the certificates with the, the death doula training, ayahuasca has been my biggest teacher on death. And ayahuasca is a psychedelic brew from the Amazon, and they literally call the vine the vine of death because this plant will show you those uh, <laughs> those realms and give you an ego death. So that's been a huge teacher. You know what? It's not all light and rainbows and beauty and you know some sometimes it is it's like wow profound and amazing and other times it's hard work but you're holding space through that hard work too some people go out kicking and screaming they they aren't at peace they you know you've heard of the term death throes there is that literally can happen to some people where they're having tantrums at death going out fighting their ego fighting because they do not want to die and i've had one story that my my teacher um relayed to us was uh, you know and this is a great example of holding space with calm and consistency without judgment through like a tumultuous death she was holding space for um uh, a, a man who was not very old at all, just in his 40s and had a prognosis of, 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 you know, of cancer and he was not going to be able to make it. And he also had a young family, too. And, you know, he was trying everything he could to survive, obviously, you know, all different types of treatments, including holistic ones as well. And also kind of on a spiritual path, too, through through the midst. So she was his doula and she held space for him. But he went out kicking and screaming, swearing, cussing, like anger, rage. And she said it was the most difficult death for her to hold space for. But you just had to let them do it. You, you honor them through. You can't, you know, there's no interfering. You can't say, calm down. You need to chill out. Like it's, that's how 
that this person chose to go. So a part of it too is holding space for the person's wishes and where they're at, you know? So sometimes people don't go and leave at peace. And so it's holding space for that too. We can't fix people. Death and how you want to exit is a personal choice. You know, we are free beings of will and choice. If we want to be at peace with everything when we go, then that's our, that's our, we have agency to do that. But then we also have agency to not do that. So as a doula, you can, you can hold space through some very challenging, you know, very challenging deaths as well. And, you know, (laughs) it is what it is. Like you said, you're just there. And you just, you know, it's process that you just help anchor people into. And um, yeah. <laughs> the challenge really there, because in one sense, you, you're the presence to be there and not change their experience or try to fix it or make it better. Or and I, I, the temptation to almost take some of their discomfort on in order to try and save them from it it's much more skillful than I think you even are necessarily aware that takes a lot of what you're saying inner work, your own boundaries, which is which your own practices to be able to hold space for someone going through very, a very difficult process that they need to go through. And actually by trying to change that process, you're almost doing them a disservice. Yes, absolutely. And having said that, it's an ind- individual process, obviously, mm-hmm. for the person dying. Mm-hmm. But it there is a collective process, too, because when the person passes, you have all the people left behind. And there's all that as well. So helping people move through bereavement and grief, uh, giving them the tools that they need or help signposting them towards self-care for their grief and bereavement is also part of the doula role too. And, and a big part of it uh, through COVID and like the pandemic was a lot of my work was mostly for uh, people who uh, family members who had a loved one die of COVID and they didn't have any closure. They didn't have, uh, it was difficult because, you know, you can't be with your loved one who's intubated and, dying. So there was a lot of need for that during the pandemic of bringing in uh, holding space for people's grief and bereavement, helping them move through closure uh, exercises and self-care rituals, you know, and, uh, you know, this is also important too, you know, of, of, of being able to come together in community. So a big part of my work too is a very death positive advocate where I love to hold space in terms of like having uh, circles, grief circles, death cafes. And I did a lot of that during the pandemic where people can come and meet well online on zoom uh, and share and share their experiences and to feel held and do group meditations and do, you know, these exercises and processes for people to be able to feel held, continue to be held, you know, in a community sense and, And I I realize this, you know, like we really um, are lacking this in the West. We don't have a community support for our grief. Often when we lost someone, it's straight to work the next day for some of us. We can't have any time off, can't afford it and need to go back to work. And the grieving process is just 
takes longer and we're not shown any processes to help cathartically release and to integrate. So I'm also really passionate about changing a lot of this in the West. So I do a lot of workshops as well on, on, on grief and catharsis and, and look at the long history of how we've cathartically released grief through thousands of years of, of these interesting performances and processes and rituals. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, crying and wailing and singing and making sound and using our bodies like dancing, shaking, keening. And in, 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 in uh, Ireland, there's the process of keening, which is a, you know, a, a sort of a death wail, singing eulogies, and also rocking back and forth and clapping. And so there's something there that wants to be released uh, emotionally and energetically within our bodies. And so I'm really uh, a big advocate of bringing some of these ancient practices and their communal, their, their community practices back to help with the grieving process and help people feel held as well. So we'll see. I think it all has to start with education though, because we don't talk about death. We're, we're taught sex in school, sex education, but there's no death education. And I, you know, I feel like if, if we start, you know, a reform of change of social change and start, you know, having this in our education system or conversations and in our community, then this will help us, you know, it'll help us collectively and really look at it. But uh, yeah, in the West, we're really disconnected from the process. Uh, we are in a youth obsessed um, consumer based uh, world out here in the West and people want to ignore all that stuff about death. <laughs> and, and with our, with our greater um, move from the church, which I think provided some sort of physical and space and community space that people could come together and grieve in a ritual that was predefined. And so they were ushered through some sort of process um, into their into their feelings that were welcomed and expected. You sort of, you could take you could take your grief there with a sort of greater move away into a more secular society, definitely within the UK, um, that has almost been removed as well. So as you say, there's actually very little, very few places that you can take your grief and process those emotions. And so many people are left doing it alone. Yes. And, you know, I see this from a science-based point of view too, because grief is also biological. I mean, have you ever tried to hold back tears and crying? It takes a lot of energy to do that. Just as we're about to start crying, our blood pressure goes up, our heart starts racing. And if you're trying to fight that, it is really intense. And we need to biologically release uh, and, and come back into homeostasis because when we cry and wail and sob, that's what happens. Our body comes back down into homeostasis as we release that. We need to get it back down to equilibrium. So there's, there's also science that backs up that this is healthy. You know, we need to be doing this. Also studies show that if, if you're not, you don't allow yourself to do this, the grief 
the emotional process, the grieving pro- process is longer. It takes much longer to, to, to go through it. Um, and also it's, um, it's very intense for the body too. So even if we could, you know, provide a new framework for some of these, I guess, ancient practices that have been associated with certain, you know, ontological leanings and religious or spiritual leanings, if you just broke it down to the actual science, it's really healthy. So, you know, you could, we could provide these you know, these sessions for people where they just come in and do breath work or, you know, do some grieving work, or this is something I do with clients where we just do a lot of big size together. And I I pull them into like, I guess like a meditation, but there's no spiritual connection to what you're meditating. It's just being mindful and the big size help to release tears and I will cry with them, you know, and even though I've not lost the person, I will help initiate the tears and the sobbing and the crying. And a lot of men need this, you know, a lot of men need this because women, it's there, we, you know, we feel comfortable to do that. And it's within our cultural, uh, you know, trope to do that. Men are told since they're like, you know, four years old, five years old, don't cry. Don't be a girl. Are you a sissy? And so, you know, we've got all of these cultural things that have held us back from just this biological processing. But I think there's so many things that we can do to help the grieving process, uh, even including movement, you know, shaking it out. Um, that helps also with, with grief. So, and it doesn't have to have any spiritual leanings at all. I mean, this is, this is science-based stuff. So hopefully we'll get back to some of this again and be able to take care of people. And especially right now with all the collective grief with the pandemic, it's the time is now, right? (laughs) And I really love hearing that you are creating these spaces that people can come to like death cafes and grief circles I mean you are the change that you want to see and there's that's you know a very powerful thing to be showing up for in the world and I guess it holds real testament to I'm imagining the fact that you work with death allowing you to live your best life and on purpose um, and I really see that in the work that you are doing um, and I really thank you for showing up um, to do the work that you do. It's so needed for individuals and for the collective to reintroduce the acceptance of grief and allowing you to feel and express how you feel. The more we keep our feelings trapped, the more stress it places on our bodies and the more dis-ease that leads to in later life. Um, well, I think you bring a beautiful blend of, of magic, really. The most difficult, I think, parts of life. So I really thank you for um, thank you for doing that work. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. And it was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you so Lovely. much. Thank you so much. Stop recording. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It's so good to be back. And just as a little reminder, I want to remind you of the event coming up on the 21st of March on the Spring Equinox. More details next week. And please do follow my Instagram at dr.bodymindsoul for all the latest updates. I'll speak to you next week, folks. 
Lovely to, to be back. Thank you.